Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast, and happy Monday, everyone, and happy Thanksgiving week to all of the American listeners out there, or as we like to say here in Canada, happy American Thanksgiving, as we have our own Thanksgiving here in Canada. It's the second Monday every October. That's our Thanksgiving. But I do appreciate the American Thanksgiving, of course, primarily because of the slate of NFL football games that's always on TV. I went to college in the United States. I'm a proud graduate of Boise State University, so I had several American Thanksgivings uh, when I was going to school. And I have to say, I think I prefer it being the first day of the long extended weekend versus the last. So many Canadians actually host their Thanksgiving dinners on the Sunday before Thanksgiving Monday simply because everyone has to work on the Tuesday. So as far as I'm concerned, I think we need a new law here in Canada that our Thanksgiving should move to be the first day of the extended weekend versus the last. I do also know that some Canadians um, appreciate how Black Friday has become a thing here in Canada as well. Uh, not so much the uh, fighting each other for the products and all of those sort of news clips we tend to see on TV on that evening, but more about the sale prices, right? The, the border right now is essentially closed to non-essential traffic. But in the past, and of course going forward, many Canadians do cross-border shop and have on Black Friday to take advantage of the deals. Like I live 35 minutes from the U.S. border, so it's really not that difficult to get across under normal circumstances. So eventually Canadian retailers realized what was happening and they had to follow suit. They were kind of forced to, to produce sale prices here in Canada to try to entice shoppers to stay in Canada. And then so all of a sudden Black Friday became a thing. Even though when I was growing up, Black Friday wasn't a thing uh, for us here in Canada. It was kind of an American thing the day after uh, Thanksgiving. So with online shopping and all of that, we certainly are, are you know, seeing lots of sales and lots of enticing. So it's always an interesting time of year for sure. And, and, and COVID is not making this any easier for us to, to navigate. Thanks for choosing to hang out again this week. And uh, I want to welcome any new listeners out there that may be joining for the first time. You're, you're listening and even potentially subscribing means a lot. And I really do appreciate the support. Uh, quick fantasy football update. Just uh, you didn't ask, but I'm telling you uh, another win this week. A little bit surprised with the win this week. I wasn't supposed to win. My opponent on paper definitely should have won this week, but some of his players underperformed. And therefore, I end up now eight and three. This week is over. I'll end the weekend at least tied for first place with one other franchise, probably two others. So there'll be three of us tied for first place. The win I had this weekend was actually over the fourth first place team. We were all tied for first place. So that clears a little bit of the room at the top of the uh, standings. So playoffs pretty much guaranteed right now. But after that, you know, you'd like I always say with fantasy football, you live the ups and downs week to week and you never, ever know. Uh, today, we've got Bill Ferreter. Really excited about my interview with Bill. Um, Bill is a well-known expert in both uh, PLCs, but also tech. He is a full-time science teacher uh, from North Carolina whose first-hand experience in navigating remote learning, uh, the way that things are handled both in the spring and now, brings just such a level of authenticity to our conversation. So you don't want to miss that. It's it's a really, really good interview, and, and Bill's just got some great insight and and ideas about how to navigate this the uncertainty of this situation in assessment corner i'm going to focus on the practice of instructional agility and how we can use our assessment planning to create the opportunity for real-time instructional maneuvers i've been asked several questions this week about how to prepare to be instructionally agile so i'm going to explore that uh, in assessment corner so 
That is the plan for today. We've got a packed episode, lots to get to, so let's get to it. My interview with Bill Ferreter is coming up shortly, but first, don't at me. But I'm going to open this week by speaking directly to leaders by asserting that you need to lead with your charisma. Now, let me get two things out of the way right off the bat. First, I'm not talking to just those who are leaders by title. Leadership is about influence, not title. If your title is all that compels others to take your lead, then from my perspective, you aren't much of a leader. Leadership can come from everywhere. Yes, there are certain things that are the responsibility of those who have a title, but leaders lead and don't default to this, oh, I'm just a teacher or I have no control or anything like that. That's a cop-out. It drives me crazy when educators refer to the system as if the education system is something that excludes them, even though they work inside the system. Now, I understand, maybe you don't have complete control over every aspect of the system, but the system is primarily made up of the people working inside the system. So this act of dehumanizing or referring to the system or the district is just a way of shirking any responsibility for what you could do. Anyway, I'll I'll have more on that another time. Now, second, I'm not talking about the caricature of charisma where some mesmerizingly attractive leader works some kind of voodoo magic on their loyal followers, and I'm using air quotes there, loyal followers, to act against their will or in ways that are unbecoming or out of step with the norms of any industry. That's not what I'm talking about here. The truth is we all say we don't want a charismatic leader until we don't have one. And then we directly or indirectly Blame the leader's lack of charisma for the fact that there's no vision or there's no direction or we're rudderless or whatever the case is. Charisma is not a four-letter word. Let's start with what the word charisma actually means. Now, according to Psychology Today, charisma is an individual's ability to attract and influence other people. And while it's often described as this mysterious quality that one either has or doesn't have, Some experts argue that the skills of charismatic people can be learned and cultivated. Okay, so let's work off of that definition. So let's think about that. The ability to attract and influence other people. Isn't that what leaders do? I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about physical attraction here. We're talking about attracting and influencing people. People have to be attracted and drawn to leaders. But again... If you're thinking about the very narrow definition of drawn or attract, or if you're thinking about the caricature of charisma, then that's on you, because I haven't said that. People can be attracted to leaders for a number of different reasons, but leaders have to lead. I remember listening to Michael Fullan probably 15 years ago or so. We were at a conference, and he said two things that I never forgot. The first was, shared leadership is not no leadership. And the second, and he was speaking more to principals directly, this was a conference for principals and district leaders. He was saying, principals and district leaders have to stop being afraid to lead. Once again, if you think anything I'm saying right now is about some egocentric leadership or narcissism or anything like that, 
That's you layering that connotation on top of what I'm saying. I, for one, am growing a little bit tired of this overcorrection where leaders who earn their way into positions of influence are suddenly afraid to ruffle any feathers. I was having this conversation with someone just a few days ago, and we were talking about how there seems to be, in some circles, this deferential leadership style in education where principals will send things out, like I see this on social media and on Twitter, principals will send things out that assert that my only job is to make the teacher's job easier. Really? That's it? Look, I, I know what they mean in terms of, you know, obstacles or running interference with the district mandate sometimes or absorbing pressure from parents and things like that. I get that. And I get that that's part of the job. But really, that's the entirety of the job? Easier should not really be the litmus test for, for leadership. More effective, more efficient for teachers? Absolutely. But easier? I'm sorry, I'm not buying that. If easier is the goal, then as a leader, you would never create a culture of continued professional growth. Why? Well, because the status quo is definitely easier. If making life easier for teachers was simply the overarching goal, then you would never initiate any exploration that seeks to modernize our assessment and grading practices. Why? Well, because how we've always done it is definitely easier. And if easier is the goal, then you wouldn't challenge those whose practices are antiquated or out of line because guess what? Not upsetting people is definitely easier. I mean, I could go on. Once again, if you think this is me pushing an egocentric authoritative leadership style, then again, that's you putting the connotation on top of what I'm saying. Easier cannot be the singular goal. So let's dig a little bit deeper and talk a little bit more about charisma. So this is back to psychology today. Charisma, quote, charisma is a personal quality evident in the way an individual communicates to others that makes someone more influential. This power to attract attention. Now remember our conversation from last week about how important attention is, the attention for change. Okay, this power to attract attention and influence people can be embodied in the way someone speaks, what someone says, and how someone looks when they're communicating. To make change happen, you need their attention, and it's through your charisma that you gain their attention. Now let's go back. Let's keep going with this definition of psychology today. Quote, charisma can help rouse followers or team members to band together in pursuit of goals. It can infuse group efforts with a sense of meaning and purpose, reminding everyone of the values they share, often through the use of symbols and storytelling. The specific goals and values can vary across places and social groups." End quote. That's a bad thing? You need charisma to lead. But I say that by thinking of the broadest definition of what charisma can be. The only non-negotiable is that it has to be authentic. I mean, don't try to manufacture a persona that is not who you are, because that'll be sniffed out in minutes. Find your charisma. Understand your charisma. In other words, ask yourself, why should people follow you as a leader? What are they drawn to? What attracts them to you? Your charisma can be your experience. 
people can see in you someone who has, you know, been through it all. And as a result of that, they have tremendous confidence in your experience and know that that will be an asset going forward and that you will be a steady hand. Your charisma can be your empathy. People can be drawn to you because of your ability to sense how others, whether it's individuals or a collective, how others are feeling and what their needs are, both short-term and long-term. Your charisma can be your example. People are drawn to you, are attracted to you as a leader because they literally take your lead through your work ethic, your commitment, or your determination. Your charisma can be your intellect. People are drawn to you, attracted to you, because they see you are well-versed in the research. And then you have a thoughtful approach to reaching the shared goals that have been established in the school. Your charisma can be your passion. Now, I'm not talking about hollow pep talks here, but people are inspired by your optimism, your sense of possibility for how all learners can succeed within an environment and also creating an environment where all educators are respected and valued. Your charisma can be your strength. Again, not authoritative, but your strength in fighting for resources, standing strong in the face of external pressures, protecting the professionalism of those you work with. Your charisma can be your vulnerability. People are drawn to you. They are attracted to you as a leader for your willingness to take risks, to put your own professional reputation on display for what you believe is the right course of action. Your charisma can be your sense of team building. People are drawn to you, attracted to you, because of your ability to bring people together for a singular purpose and focus beyond that which is about one individual. Whatever your charisma is, lead with it. You're not going to get anything done without accentuating your charisma. And again, authenticity is the key here. We need to accentuate our charisma, that which makes us most influential, but it needs to be authentic. So figure out what it is. Or figure out what you want it to be and authentically develop and nurture that. That can be developed and nurtured and you will, in the end, be a more effective leader. So how do you develop it? Well, Dr. Ruth Blatt, who taught organizational behavior and entrepreneurship at the University of Illinois in Chicago, where her research focused on relational dynamics of startup teams, she says there are nine ways that people can develop their charisma. Okay, so let's go through the list. One, use metaphors. Metaphors are charismatic because they simplify and they also stir people's emotions and their imaginations. Now, I'm giving you a very sort of condensed version uh, of, of her outline of how you can develop charisma. Another way to develop charisma is the use of stories and anecdotes. She says that personal stories can be used to great effect, especially stories of early struggles and challenges and how you overcame those. You can develop your charisma by showing moral conviction. Again, moral significance makes your message more meaningful by appealing to people and their sense of the right thing to do. You start to reinforce the core shared values and you stir in others action that they want to go forth with. You can develop your charisma by expressing shared feelings as others, right? By revealing that you feel the same way as others do. You start to increase others' ability to identify with you and connect with you. You can develop your charisma by setting high expectations and communicating confidence. By expecting much from others, but also from yourself, 
you inspire those around you to be more than they are now. But it's not enough just to set high expectations, she says. You have to let others know that you believe in them, right? So that high expectations and communicating confidence. Six, use contrasts to frame and focus your messages. Contrasts are powerful rhetorical devices because they emphasize, you know, here's why we're different or here's why we go the extra mile or whatever we're communicating. Seven, use lists. Lists boost charisma because they give people the impression of completeness. They send the message that you have a coherent understanding of the issue at hand. Eight, use rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions attract people to you because they draw people in. When you say things like, so where do we go from here? And then you provide the response to that. Or you say, how are we going to make this happen? It becomes an attractive force for people. And nine, use nonverbal strategies to animate your words. By animating your body language, your, you engage others, your gestures, your facial expressions, your vocal tone, that demonstrates passion and leaves what is a more memorable impression. Whether you're on a stage or, or whether you're around a meeting table, that's how you can draw people in. But again, I can't emphasize this enough. If any of this, any of it, is forced or phony, it will backfire and you will be found out. This is not a list of nine things to do. It's nine ways to develop your charisma. And maybe a few of them are suitable for you. So it will actually accentuate what already exists within you. That's the point. Figure out what your charisma is, accentuate it, and develop it. Because if leadership is about influence, and charisma is what makes someone more influential, and charisma can be developed, then it's clear we need to find our charisma, develop our charisma, so we can lead with our charisma. Joining me today is Bill Ferreter. Uh, Bill is an author and a speaker and also a full-time eighth grade science teacher in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. He is by all accounts considered an expert in both ed tech and PLCs. He has authored several books and book chapters. His latest book is the Big Book of Tools for Collaborative Teams and a PLC at Work, which is literally a big book of tools. And I know there's a lot of buzz about that book and people just really excited about all the, the tools that Bill's put in that book. Now, if you've at all been paying attention, you know that Bill has been and still is very active on social media, especially over the last eight months as teachers have been pivoting towards remote learning, uh, hybrid learning, and all of the different iterations we've seen uh, throughout the spring and, the, and now into the fall. So that's why Bill is here, and that's why I've asked Bill to join me uh, today. We're going to get into all of that in terms of what it's like as a full-time classroom teacher to live this experience with, with teaching during COVID. So Bill, with all of that, I want to welcome you to the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. I sure appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you here because, you know, as as we've seen the evolution of, of remote learning, hybrid learning, all the different models around North America and around the world, literally. Um, I'm just excited to hear from somebody who really is, you know, on the front lines, as we like to say, or, or in the trenches doing this work with students. So I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to hear your perspective on how things have gone. So I, I want to start by going back to last spring. Uh, you know, COVID-19 starts accelerating last spring, um, like teachers all across North America and around the world for that matter, they were pivoting rather quickly to a remote learning model. 
I, I'm just curious, can you take us inside your thinking, you know, seven, eight months ago, as things started to happen, you know, quite quickly and, and somewhat unexpectedly for teachers, walk us through your thought process as, as this pivoting was happening, as you were trying to figure out what this remote learning or distance learning was going to look like, help us sort of take us inside what you were thinking, you know, seven, eight months ago, as this kind of unfolded in real time. Yeah, it's a, it was a, an incredibly interesting pivot, that's for sure. Uh, I, was, I was actually teaching diseases. In my eighth grade curriculum, we study diseases. So we had been talking about vaccines and pandemics. And, you know, it was a perfect teachable moment given what was happening. Uh, and my students started to ask me whether or not they thought we'd be out of school. And I was like, nah, I don't think that'll happen. We'll be okay. The virus right now is limited to China. It doesn't look like it's going to spread globally. So... You know, we should be fine. And I told them that on a Thursday, I had a doctor's appointment on a Friday and we were out of school permanently the following Monday. Never saw them again, wow. like at least in, at least in person. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was heartbroken because that group of kids was um, something special. You know, I had taught them when they were in sixth grade. I had just gotten moved to eighth grade. So they had helped me through a year of transition too. Uh, they, they were a group that meant a lot to me because I was taking a risk in eighth grade, having never taught the curriculum before, but I knew that I could take risks with that particular group because they had a relationship with me to begin with. And the first thing I thought when we switched to remote and hybrid learning actually had nothing to do with learning. You know, what I was most concerned about was were the kids safe and were they fed and, you know, were they in a situation where they felt like they could be um, comfortable and successful as people at home? You know, what was mom and dad, what were mom and dad up to? What new responsibilities did they take on at home because mom and dad were still trying to work and they had to pick up the slack for their families? So a lot of my initial concerns, which I think probably were true for a lot of teachers, had nothing to do with teaching and learning, but instead had everything to do with how do I support these kids as, you know, people who are living in their communities who are going through what is obviously a traumatic time for them too. Yeah. Um, so once we had that all nailed down, which involved lots and lots of phone calls, which involved trips to neighborhoods that aren't really all that close to our particular building, which involved knocking on a bunch of doors. Once all that was done, then I could like shift my focus to teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. And what was cool to me, I think what I liked the most is that in this spring, our district made a lot of choices that other districts did too in the sense that learning wasn't required for students. They didn't have to come to any live lessons whatsoever. Uh, also, grades weren't given. We weren't allowed to score anything. Uh, standardized tests were ditched. You know, in, in our district, we didn't have any standardized testing and kids and parents both knew that. And so what that became was all of the things that I don't like about school we're gone, right? Like, yeah. like grade grubbing, you know, when yeah. kids are like constantly looking for individual points, it didn't matter anymore because we weren't grading anything and the kids knew it. Uh, standardized tests, trying to grind through EOG review, that didn't have to happen mm -hmm. uh, at the end of last year. And I thought that was really kind of neat. Like it created new opportunities to focus just on learning and learning for learning's sake, as opposed to learning because I'm chasing a grade or learning because there's an EOG test on the way. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, the greatest challenge was, how do I encourage the kids to come to me? Because our lessons weren't even required. Like a student didn't have to log in ever. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to complete any assignments whatsoever. 
In fact, teachers weren't even required to offer live lessons to students if they didn't want to. We were encouraged to post assignments online that kids could complete, but we didn't have to offer a lesson to students in Google Meet or in Zoom. There, there didn't need to be a live component of our work whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to because I knew that the kids needed to fill that void of school. Like a lot of students need school for stability's sake, right? Or for routine's sake. And to have that all taken away, you know, where maybe mom and dad are losing their job. Maybe somebody in your family has ended up with COVID. Maybe you're just worried about what this pandemic means. Oh yeah. And school is gone too. That was really difficult for kids. So pretty quickly, I decided I was going to offer live lessons because I felt like it was a place for lots of kids to come and feel like there was some stability and normalcy in their life. And then pretty quickly, I realized that if the kids were going to come to my live lessons, I needed to make sure that I connected everything that we were doing to something that was more meaningful and more important and more purposeful to our kids. Um, and so that was cool, right? Like it was an additional challenge for me as a teacher to find ways to hook kids into coming. I think that sometimes over the course of our careers, teachers get lazy because kids are going to come to our rooms, whether we're good instructors or not. And I needed to realize that that didn't have that hook anymore. Compliance wasn't the reason that kids were going to come to my room. There was no compliance whatsoever. And I, and I really liked that. You know, it was neat for me to be able to tinker with um, my instruction and the curriculum that I chose to deliver, all with the goal of um, luring students in as the, as the primary driver. And uh, I liked it. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. To be perfectly honest, it was neat. And it was cool to see my kids respond to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was not uncommon. I think I taught last year, I had 120 students who were assigned to me. And I would do two live lessons a week. Uh, I offered them both in the morning and in the afternoon because I wanted to be flexible for kids. Um, and I think over the course of most of my lessons, I would have a good 80 to 90 kids come. Um, which I felt really good about, you know, to, to see almost my whole caseload in a completely optional environment, um, you know, I thought was neat. It felt like a service that I was offering to kids and, uh, and they really responded to it. it you know, it, that's been such a, a common theme of, of folks I've, I've spoken with about, you know, how they've navigated the pandemic, the, the importance of relationships and, and connecting with kids. The first thing you mentioned, the second thing you mentioned that, again, you know, prioritizing about what truly matters and what we can do without. But the third piece I, I really appreciated was this, this idea of, uh, and yes, we have students who are, who struggle to make a regularly scheduled live lesson, but how much kids thrive on predictability and grounding with, with being able to connect with you on a regular basis. It would seem to me that that would give them in all of the sort of perceived or real chaos that they were dealing with in their lives, that, that the ability to have the option to come and join a live lesson to just kind of get grounded with their teacher seems, um, would seem to be very comforting to so many of them. Um, in your, in your specific role, uh, what, uh, you know, back, back then, what was one of the biggest challenges, or maybe there's several of them, but when you think about the biggest challenge you faced early on, and how did you overcome that? Like, what were some of the things that you had to overcome early on as you transitioned into this remote learning uh, model? You know, it, as as much as I hate to talk about technology, you know, it, I, I enjoy 
technology, but I put myself as a teacher first and a tech guy second. Yeah. Um, I think good teaching always trumps good technology. Mm -hmm. But if I were to say what was the biggest challenge, the biggest challenge was figuring out all the ins and outs of the rules of technology and access to technology, both within my district mm -hmm. and then for my students. Right. Um, so I'll give you an example of what I mean. I wanted to use Zoom. I mean, originally I jumped on Zoom. I got myself a free account. I, I think I even paid for an upgrade because I could get access to more students and permission levels, things like that. Uh, and I had it all figured out. I ran a couple of live meets with my kids and then my district decided that we couldn't use Zoom. And you know, the, the reason was justified, yeah. right? This back in the spring, remember Zoom bombing, Zoom bombing was a thing yeah. and yeah. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't even a small thing, it was a big thing. Yes, it was a big um, thing. And so, you know, my district had to catch up mm -hmm. with their decisions around what they were and were not going to allow technology-wise. And I wanted to act faster than that mm -hmm. simply because I wanted to fill that chaos that you spoke about. Right. You know, you mentioned whether it was real or whether it was not to the kids, it felt very real, exactly. right? Yeah. And so I wanted to move fast and I would get ahead of my district and then I would have to take three steps back and then reimagine whatever it was that I had just figured out mm -hmm. using whatever tool ended up being approved by the district. Mm -hmm. So that was a challenge. Uh, it was also a challenge because I knew that there were kids who didn't have access to technology. And that was um, not something that I could solve personally, mm -hmm. right? And that was, that drove me bananas, you know, like my school serves, uh, we have the majority of the kids who live right around my building are, you know, middle-class kids with, you know, access to technology at home. However, we've got one, uh, about 20% of our population, one node is what we call it here, who live in some pretty tough circumstances right. and who don't have access to high-speed internet at home and who probably don't have their own devices. You know, they were regularly borrowing devices here at school. Mm -hmm. And I knew that those kids couldn't access my lessons. And I knew that there wasn't a lot I could do about that. Um, I knew my district was working on it. I, like most districts in probably all over the world, I think our district responded incredibly yeah. at providing our students with food and access to technology that they've never had before. Right. And those plans were accelerated and hard to implement. So I'm really proud of what we did. Mm -hmm. But it meant that there were a lot of kids missing out. And I wasn't sure what I could do about that, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so there's some moral tension mm -hmm. in, inside of me around, should I keep offering these lessons knowing that some of my students can't access them? Or should I work harder on trying to help every kid access my lessons? Right. And, and what's the right answer to that question? I'm, I'm not sure that I ever found the right moral answer to that question, at least in the spring. Yeah, that's a, so. it's, a it's an interesting dilemma because I think, pre-COVID, we may at times have all been guilty of forgetting how much schools provide to students just beyond learning in terms of food, in terms of uh, predictability around adult access and, and support from adults in their lives, technology, all of those things, you know, suddenly, you know, became exposed and realizing that not all students have access, not all students, you know, have, have uh, predictability around, you know, there's food insecurity, there's there, there sure. may not be the kind of support at home. And so it really forced a lot of tough conversations. Uh, but it sounds like your district um, acted as, I mean, these things still take time, right? Even if you recognize right. a deficit, it's still going to take time to put, 
you know, bandwidth into into motion and technology put put tools in, in students' hands. Can you can you maybe just give us a little bit of insight? Like, what exactly did your district do to address that uh, equity issue? I was I was super proud of my district. Okay. You know, like, and and I think. <laughs> I think, and I hope that most communities around the world are proud of their school districts too, mm -hmm. because we really did have to plug a lot of holes and fill a lot of gaps. And the things that schools provide became really obvious once schools weren't there to provide them anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, my school started by providing meals, uh, uh, free lunches for students. And that involved determining where in the communities were the right spots to start distributing those meals, right? So which it, where's the right community center to go to so that we can reach the most kids? Right. Who's going to distribute the meals and how are they going to be prepared and delivered? Mm -hmm. And that was up and running. I mean, I want to say within a week. Yep. And it blew my mind that we could figure out how to feed kids, which was really one of my major concerns about our student population that struggles is where are their meals going to come from? The fact that we could address that in no time was awesome. And our school, our district went beyond just feeding our students. You know, it became, hey, anyone who's hungry, come and get a lunch right, right now. We right. don't care who you are. If you're not enrolled in our school, still come and get a lunch. Yeah. If you're an older brother who's graduated, still come and get a lunch. Yeah. And that made me really proud. Yeah. Um, the next step that our district took was we had rolled out a few years ago a, a, a computer initiative where every single classroom in our district had 10 devices of some kind, mm -hmm. whether they were Chromebooks, whether they were laptops, whether they were iPads. Well, they came pretty quickly, like within two weeks or so, and took every one of those devices back out of the building mm -hmm. and started distributing them to students. Right. So students could request a device and the district would bring those devices uh, we had always had in the distance, uh, our district, you know, we're a school district of 190,000 kids. So it's a pretty big district. And they had always kind of thought that they might go one-to-one -one someday. And those plans got accelerated super quickly so that we could get more devices on hand as soon as possible yeah. so that every kid who needed one could have one. And then the last thing that they did was they found, actually, they did two other things that I was impressed by. The first is they found support for um, Wi-Fi hotspots for any family that needed them. They then extended that so that they could provide Wi-Fi hotspots for every student. So it went from one hotspot per family to one hotspot per student. Because what we found was that kids could get online, but if there were three or four students in the family all trying to get online, that hotspot wasn't handling the bandwidth demands to participate in a live lesson right. or those sorts of things. Yeah. So I thought that was a, a really neat step. And then the very last thing that they've done that I think is neat is they've recruited community sponsors to start providing um, childcare and after-school support for both teachers' children who need it but also for um, families who need it as well. Yeah. So there's a big focus on, well, if mom and dad are going back to work and you've got students who live in a community where maybe they don't get as much support as they can, or maybe it's not completely safe to stay home alone, mm -hmm. then we started to find ways to provide those students with childcare. Yeah. So all those steps are neat, right? right. Like it, it wasn't just addressing the academic needs of kids. It was addressing access to all kinds of basic needs that many of us take for granted. It just, and, uh, yeah. it, just it, cool. it just shows you how, you know, integral schools are as, you know, just a, a, a foundation in our, in our communities. Do you think a lot of those um, uh, 
you know, approaches, programs, initiatives, et cetera, will, will they have a lasting legacy? Do you think they're acute uh, solutions or do you see, you know, whether it's the bandwidth issue, whether it's childcare, do you see those as, as being maybe, maybe not permanent, but in some cases permanent sort of historical, like having historical legacy in terms of as we come out of the pandemic, do you, do you see those maintaining themselves uh, going forward? It's such an interesting question. Um, and I, and I, and I, I'm like choked up a little bit because I don't know that providing individual students with hotspots addresses like bandwidth equity issues in our highest needs communities. Right. Um, I don't know that providing students with, uh, or communities with access to um, childcare as needed I don't know that that's something that's going to stick around long after we're done. It doesn't put a childcare center in a high needs community. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would like to think that they would be historical and Mm -hmm. that they would be permanent. Um, I just have questions about that, you know, because we haven't really changed anything structurally Mm -hmm. about our highest needs communities. We've addressed needs that they have in the immediate present but those um, solutions that we've generated are solutions that don't feel super permanent to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the awareness of need and the knowledge that schools address lots of needs is something that will be permanent. Yeah. Um, but I'm not so sure that the solutions that we put in place are, are structural changes to communities. Um, and that worries me, right? Because, yeah. you know, as soon as the pandemic goes away and people aren't thinking about it anymore, mm-hmm. districts begin to say, hey, wait a minute, why are we still paying for all these wireless hotspots? Right. You know, and when you combine the fact that, you know, income that supports education comes from community tax dollars, which are down like crazy, it makes me wonder about whether or not a district will start to question their investment in things that we really ought to invest in. Yeah. Um, in the long term. So I would hope they'd be historical, but I'm not sure they will be. Yeah. The one, the one thing I think that districts are going to have a tough time running away from uh, districts, municipalities, cities, states, is that we have not just been dealing with a pandemic in 2020. We've also been dealing with, uh, you know, racial equity, uh, you know, the disparity between, you know, socioeconomic status. Uh, And while the pandemic will likely be resolved, you know, in in one way, shape or form going forward, that still leaves questions about equity, especially for black and brown and indigenous learners who really have been disadvantaged by a system for so long that that those those issues are not going to go away with, uh, you know, a vaccine or, or, you know, as as we see uh, the pandemic. So hopefully, uh, those those questions can be answered more permanently in communities that include the schools. It's, it's not just up to the schools to solve those issues for sure, but schools have to be a part of that solution because they understand the needs of students so well and families and, and are so connected to those families. Um, yeah, that's truth. Yeah, uh, fingers crossed. Hopefully, uh, we can we could that that legacy. Um, we just can't run away from that. I, I'm wondering about the the flip side. Was there anything about the move to remote learning that was maybe surprisingly easier. I'm not saying it was easy, but were there some things that were surprisingly easier than you had anticipated, in, especially in the spring? But even now, are there things that you're finding, wow, I thought that was going to be a big deal, but it really isn't? Yeah, 
It's a, it's I, I saw that question you had when you sent me the questions earlier, and there are a lot of things that I like better about instruction now than instruction before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a few examples. First of all, I feel like I get way more participation out of my students now than I did when they were in my classroom. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And that's largely because there's technology affords multiple avenues to participate without the social stigma that goes uh, into taking a risk in a middle school classroom, right? right? There, there are lots of middle schoolers who will never raise their hand in a classroom because they're afraid of whatever comes out of their mouth becoming something that is judged by all of their peers. Whereas when you work in a digital space with students, you can give them lots of anonymous ways mm-hmm in order to be able to share their thinking. And the result is, I think I get way more participation now than I ever did before, mm. uh, from far more students than ever before. And so I feel really good about that. I think yeah. that's fun. Um, I feel like I have some students, I'm in a unique situation because this group of kids that I'm now teaching are the last group of kids that I taught when I was a sixth grade teacher. Ah. So this group in particular that I've worked with this year are students that I know. Mm -hmm. And when they were with me in sixth grade and even last year, I would hear about them in seventh grade. There are several kids who really, really struggled with the social side of school. Mm -hmm. Um, They couldn't really cooperate while they were, you know, next to another student. It was difficult for them to respond appropriately when disciplined by a teacher. There were those sorts of kind of interpersonal challenges for this bunch. And I haven't seen any of it. Mm -hmm. Some of the students who struggled the most when they were with me in sixth grade are just soaring right now, really succeeding. And so I think that's a positive. Mm -hmm. Like I think that there are some students who remote learning has been a victory for. Now, I don't think that's the case for all students. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have an eight year old, I said that wrong. I have a, what is she now? 11-year-old daughter. She's in sixth grade. You're sixth supposed grade. to know, Bill. You're supposed to know. <laughs> supposed to know. She's in sixth grade, and uh, and she's incredibly lonely. Mm. You know, here in our district, students rotate in for, uh, they're in three cohorts, so they rotate in for four days every three weeks. Mm-hmm. And my daughter went to her first day of middle school, official face-to-face middle school, yesterday. Yeah. And it was so good to see her when she came home. She was like, dad, I made two friends and mm-hmm. I know my teachers now and Miss Miss G, my math teacher, she really likes me. And, and, and it's been so sad because she comes to school with me, you know, when she's not in the building mm-hmm. and I've just watched her be, I think, dejected and lonely, you know, like yeah. she doesn't every, every morning I'm like, honey, don't you want to take a shower before we go to school? Nope. So like three, four days a week, like I can't even get her to shower and she's sitting in a chair, slouched down, wrapped up in a blanket, like listening to her teachers remotely. And so it hasn't been good for her. Right. However, I do think that for some students, this mode of instruction and this opportunity to interact has been a real positive. Mm-hmm. And that's been a surprise to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I wouldn't have been able to pick the students who would thrive uh, uh, until this all happened, yeah. right? If you'd have asked me two years ago yeah. whether an all virtual environment would have worked for the students right now who are succeeding as well as they're succeeding, mm-hmm. uh, I probably couldn't have picked out that list. Mm-hmm. You know, the list probably would have been different. But so, so is that this brings re- up an interesting question, right? Yeah. Like, 
you asked a minute ago whether or not there'd be structural change in communities based on the response to the pandemic. Right. What I most want to know is will there be structural change in school? Yeah. Uh, now that now that we've had the pandemic, uh, our district, like many, offers a virtual academy option for families. Right. So families don't want to come back to school in person. They don't have to. Mm-hmm. And they can learn completely online for the entire year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in our building, we've got well, like just over 65% of our students have chosen that all virtual option. And many of them are thriving. Mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, when the pandemic goes away, does virtual academy go away too? Right. right. That's a good question. And, and I don't know that it should, yeah. you know, like based on what I've seen, I think that there will still be some students who could benefit from an all virtual environment, from the flexibility and freedom that comes from not having to be in the physical building each and every day. Yeah. So when you, when you look at that group of students who are thriving uh, under those circumstances, um, are are you not seeing a kind of, because we know that middle school, especially is such a tumultuous social environment that some kids thrive, some kids don't. Are you seeing a common theme amongst students who may have had, you know, some some struggles in the social context of, of middle school. Is that a common theme amongst the students who are thriving or are, are you seeing a, a variation that is kind of unpredictable in terms of who's no, thriving with remote? Uh, well, I think that the students who thrive in school, right? Yeah. Like you're the, you, you know who I'm talking about, the students yeah. who've made A's their entire lives, right. you know, their, their moms and dads may well be teachers, you know, their parents certainly <laughs> right. have hammered the importance of education into their heads, they're still succeeding, you know, just as we would expect. Right. What I see, the, the pattern that I see is my students who are thriving that I did not expect to thrive are kids who wrestled with that social part of school. Mm-hmm. I mean, like could not sit next to other people. Like if you put them into a group, there's a bickering match that breaks out in 14 seconds flat. Like yeah. students who have never really maybe felt good about themselves, mm-hmm. you know, so they struggled a bit with self-esteem. Yeah. And so that would play or that would come across as insecurity right. in the classroom mm-hmm. and in middle school and particularly in eighth grade, insecurity doesn't get you too terribly far. Like, I feel like you you said something important there, right? Like, like, I think most of us would look back to middle school and say it was either terrific or it was horrible. There's no in between in middle school, right? It can be a social nightmare for students. And and I think the virtual academy part has created less of that um, social intimidation that goes along with a middle school environment. Yeah. Um, So that's, that's been interesting. I do worry, like, with my own child, I worry about, you know, if I were to keep her virtual academy, mm-hmm. does that mean she loses some of the opportunity to develop the social skills that she'll need in order to be successful in the future? Right. Um, you know, but then the flip side of that exact same coin becomes like, are we convinced that those social skills can't be developed online? I mean, I, I'm pretty certain that I see more interaction between my students in the chat box than I would have ever seen between my students in the regular classroom. Right. And, and do we value that kind of social interaction between kids? When a student offers another student a hand or some advice or some guidance in the chat, mm-hmm. do, we, do we downplay that and say, hey, well, that's not social interaction. Right. Whereas if the exact same kid offered that same hand in class, we'd make them the student of the month for showing kindness, yeah. right? Like, right. so it becomes an interesting question. Do, do kids, are social skills developed in digital spaces too? Yeah. 
I think um, there's there's a couple of things to unpack there. One, the idea that sure, in the school context, socialization is an important part, not just the learning, but the socialization. But the the loss of that in a in a virtual academy then assumes that school is the only place that a student socializes, right? So right. The, these kids play on sports teams, these kids go to dance. They have a number of activities that they participate in outside of the school environment. So the assumption being that school is the only well, that's socializing within the learning context. And and certainly there's no other place in society where that many students gather on that a regular basis. But but the assumption that that's the only place they they socialize. And you're right. I think you're you're absolutely spot on. I think your question, the answer to it is yes. I think you can develop those socialization is different now. And I think we have to, in some respects, right. embrace the modernization of what uh, this interconnected world is all about. I mean, here you are in North Carolina, I'm in on the West Coast of Canada, and we're communicating and, and having a dialogue as if we were face to face. And uh, to right. me, that that uh, I think your question is a good one. And I think the answer to that is yes, I think we can. Uh, and I, I, I'm guessing that you think the same way that that those social uh, skills can be developed. A hundred percent. And it's just a matter of convincing other people. Right. Right. <laughs> hey, hey, Tom, here's the here's the other question that that um, I don't have direct evidence of. Mm -hmm. However, I think that some of my colleagues have given me anecdotal evidence of uh, I've got a colleague who works in a school that is 93 percent free and reduced lunch. It is the most difficult school. Uh, I, I guess I'm going to put air quotes on that. It's the most difficult school in our community, lowest test scores, students with the highest needs, those sorts of things. And one of the things that, that she has noticed is that her kids are thriving in a virtual setting. Mm -hmm. And so that brings up another interesting question, right? Like our schools, as we have them currently and traditionally structured, um, are, they, are they places where marginalized student populations have traditionally been successful. You know, like it, places where students who have, like our suspension rates are higher with our kids of color. Our, our The academic achievement of kids of color and kids who live in poverty are always lower than kids who don't, uh, or kids who come from more um, uh, wider and richer communities. Yeah. And so one of the things that I wonder is maybe this virtual environment is a is helping us to break away from those traditional structures of schools mm -hmm. that have always um, rewarded the haves and punished the have-nots. Right, right. That's it. So, and I, and I don't have any tangible evidence of it in my own mm -hmm. room because I don't have enough students to draw a conclusion from. But my friend who works in the highest poverty school, like she's seeing a lot of kids um, thrive in ways that they wouldn't have if they were in the traditional building. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's worth wrestling with. I think communities need to wrestle with, are our schools places where all students of all colors from all backgrounds, mm -hmm. regardless of the success or struggles of their family, mm -hmm. are our schools places where everyone succeeds? And right now the answer is obviously no. Yeah. And, and then do we see higher levels of success in a virtual environment for those students? And if so, why? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that's something that's worth wrestling with. It's a, it's a, it's a really good question. It makes me think about in, in an earlier episode, I had Anthony Muhammad on and we talked a lot about equity 
uh, and, and both in school and in society. I also had uh, Nicole on, Nicole Dimich, as you know, you know, Nicole, and her Thrive Ed students in Minneapolis, uh, again, talking about, and one of, the th one of the common themes, both from my conversation with Anthony, but also the students at Thrive Ed at Nicole's nonprofit, one of the common themes was reimagining school. And I'm and I'm right. just I'm hypothesizing here and wondering if you know what the pandemic has forced us to do is reimagine school, reimagine access, reimagine um, what does success look like? What what does it mean to be successful? And as we start to sure. reimagine that, we broaden our definition of what success is. In some respects, we start to broaden our definition of success in ways that takes us outside of the, the kind of white Eurocentric definition of success that has always been the anchor of our schools. And we've expanded that, almost been forced to expand that. And again, I'm, I'm hypothesizing here, like you, wondering why that's happening. It's, it's, it's wonderful that that is happening and that you're seeing that. Sure. And learning lessons from that would be, you know, taking a deeper dive into that, maybe a, almost like a- I hope someone does that, a, right? A, de a debrief or something. there's some research on yeah, it, right? Yeah, because yeah. even, even like a, a, an exit interview that once the pandemic is over, to kind of debrief with those students and say, why, what was it about this circumstance sure. would be very interesting uh, information for sure. So let's, yeah. um, let's pivot here to, I, you know, I think you have, a, you've, you've been, like I said, you've been very uh, outspoken on social media, and you've been very uh, forthcoming with here's what I think is the right approach. So you've been you've been doing that. Um, you know, you've always been very active on social media, but certainly during the pandemic, you've been very you know vocal. And I don't mean that in a negative connotation. You've just been very vocal about the perspective of opinionated. Well, <laughs> and and you're entitled to that opinion because you're doing the work and and yeah. uh, and you're having successes. So so let's start with I want to I want to talk about the do's and don'ts. Okay, so we have teachers right now in the midst of any type of iteration, hybrid learning, you know, rotating schedules, cohorts, full remote learning, we've got we got the gambit out there. So from your perspective, if a teacher were to kind of audit themselves right now, if, if they were to, you know, we, we, we have all these different models, uh, if they were to audit themselves and say, Okay, am I doing it the quote, unquote, right way? Uh, the, the world according to Bill, what, what are some things that teachers, what are the do's? What are some things that teachers should look for from your perspective to say, yeah, I think, I think I've got the right perspective and the right approach to this hybrid, this remote learning um, situation that I'm in right now? Well, how would I audit myself and know that I'm on the right track? Well, I would say the first thing to make sure that you're doing and, and it's so hard not to slip into a don't right now tom yeah um i think i think one of the things that's really important for for teachers to recognize is that we can't teach the way that we've always taught and we can't teach every bit of content that we've always taught before and we can't expect kids who are working without um, the traditional structures and supports of schools to be able to tackle the exact kind of tasks that um, we've always asked them to tackle before. It's just, it's not realistic. It's not possible. Um, I, I hear, and you know, you reference my social media stream. One of the things that I keep hearing in social media is teachers saying, you know, we wish people had some grace with us. We wish they understood how hard it was for us right now. We wish that, that parents and, and school leaders would, you know, give us the benefit of the doubt and, and like work with us and be patient with us as we learn all these new strategies. And every time I see those messages, 
in my mind, I substitute the word kid in there and teacher, right? Because we need to show that same grace to our students. We need to recognize that they're working and learning in a completely different environment than they've ever worked and learned in before. And so when we don't extend that same sort of grace and understanding to our students, I think it creates really unhealthy environments for kids. Right. Um, you know, I only speak from the standpoint of both a parent and a teacher, you know, and I watch my daughter sometimes uh, being asked to complete lots and lots and lots and lots of work. Right. And it breaks my heart because the end of the day will roll around. It'll be three o'clock. I'll finally get a chance. She she's over in that classroom over there right next to me during the course of the day. And I stick my head in three, four or five times, but I'm not with her all day long. And we'll get to the end of the day and there'll still be seven assignments that she needs to complete. And it's it's heartbreaking because we'll get home and sit on the couch and and spend another two hours doing schoolwork, which she doesn't want to do. And, and that's all from the, uh, I think the, that's a function of teachers who are not understanding that the way that we've always done things isn't going to work right now. And it's not fair to ask students to do those things right now. Um, so those are all don'ts, right? Like right. start to understand that your kids need um, uh, grace and understanding too. If you want it for yourself, if this has been the hardest work that you've ever done before as a teacher, please remember that it's also the hardest work your students have ever done before as learners too. And parents as well. Like, you know, I struggle to support my own kid in a good year, right? Like, cause I work a full-time job and a part-time job. I'm like every other regular Joe out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so being able to support her through a pandemic has been a real challenge. So how do you turn those into dues? I think the first thing that I would do is give your kids the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. uh, as learners be understanding with them. That might mean rethink your grading policies. Are you being flexible about due dates? Um, Have you started to give fewer, higher quality assignments? Like that's a phrase I keep going back to in my own mind is, you know, like I don't need 18 assignments in order to assess mastery. Mm -hmm. I don't even need 18 questions on a test to assess mastery. If I ask one higher order question, that's going to get me the same amount of information, if not better information than ever before. So concentrating on fewer, higher quality tasks, I think is uh, going to help teachers because there's less for us to grade, right? right? Like we're, we've gotten rid of all the chaff. So there's no sense trying to score it and mark it and look at it and provide feedback on it. But I think it's also going to provide some grace and, and flexibility for students who can't always handle the deluge of information Mm -hmm. and assignments that come from a building. Um, By the way, that's been my favorite thing about my PLC this year. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of people have asked me like, well, do you still meet with your PLC during the pandemic? I mean, where do you find time to meet with your PLC during the pandemic? Or what do you do with your PLC during the pandemic? And my answer to that is my PLC has made it our main focus to just cut everything. Like we look at everything that we've done with our students in the past and say to ourselves, this is worth doing again. And if the answer is, eh, then we cut it. It's gone. We don't, we don't need it anymore. Um, so prioritizing, using your time with your PLC to prioritize the assignments that get you the most information with the least amount of like work that kids have to generate mm-hmm. is I think a worthwhile thing to do right now. Looking at every single assessment, and saying to yourself, 
is this assessment, is every question on this assessment worth asking right now? Do we need all of them in order to be able to assess mastery? And the odds are the answer is no. And so cutting down to just the, the basics provides breathing room for teachers. It provides breathing room for students. And the end result is a collection of work and assignments that is the highest quality stuff that we have. Yeah. Uh, I see this time as an incredible opportunity for PLCs to get hyper-focused on the best of what they've always done. Right. And if teachers can focus on that, what they're really doing, if you need a selfish reason to do that, what you're really doing is giving yourself less work to grade, less assignments to provide feedback on, less work to generate and assign and however you generate and assign that work. So if you need a selfish reason, it's going to create space for you as a teacher too. But what I really see it doing is showing respect to students and understanding that they can't tackle everything that they've always tackled because they're working independently and alone. Mm -hmm. And then for the PLC, it results in by the end of this year, my team is going to have a real clear sense of what is the best of everything we've done and what should we never do again because it was a complete waste. If we create time for deeper thinking in class by getting rid of stuff that isn't necessary, I think this year will end up being a victory for our team. Did I answer your question yeah, there? Did I, I give some? Details? I think you did. It's all good. I mean, there there are these um, you know these slivers of good news and and positivity that I think we have to find during sure. this time. And and one of them is you know you 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 mentioned this. It's an expression I've used for years, which is quality over quantity, always in terms of your assessments. And then and then the question of prioritization. You know, teachers, you know, many schools have asked me, you know, what should we do? And I asked them, have you prioritized your standards? And they say, yes, we have. I said, we'll do it again. Prioritize your prioritized standards, because again, you're, you're having to rethink, you know, what you, what is possible for, for us to cover. And, and I think your point about the grace and the compassion for students is well taken. In fact, you might even argue our students are deserving of more compassion and more understanding as the only non-adults in the equation uh, who don't have the emotional right. maturity and, and, and sort of stability that we, we have as adults, we really do have to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and maybe check in with them, which leads me to my next question, because, you know, you recently tweeted out uh, this question and you, you probably remember uh, you asked this on, on Twitter uh, has your school or district surveyed students yet to see what they think is working in your pandemic teaching and learning plans? Remember, Hattie has identified, John Hattie, Hattie being John Hattie, John Hattie has identified feedback from students as one of the highest leverage practices we can use in schools, end quote. That was that was the tweet you sent out. So sure. you've done that. I know you talked to your students and you've got their feedback. Um, can you talk about two things? One is what tangible value have you seen from from those conversations from your students? And specifically, what are the students telling you? Sure. So, um, you know, when Hattie speaks about feedback, he oftentimes argues that the most valuable feedback isn't feedback from teacher to student, but instead from student to teacher. And I've shared that with audiences before. And what they ask me is, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like, how would feedback from a student help me or what should I do with it? And the answer is, you use that to inform your instructional practices. Right. You know, we can get a real sense for which parts of our instruction are working for our kids and which ones are not mm-hmm. just by listening to our students who are in the end are our consumers. Um, I've been fortunate in the sense that I've surveyed kids for years. Like it's just a regular part of my class. 
And I'm always interested in whether they think individual instructional practices are working or what part of my class resonates. And so doing it during the pandemic has been a breeze for me. And, it, and it's actually been super important to me because I'm teaching in a brand new way, right? And I say that to my kids all the time. I'm like, you know, like I've never done this before either. Yep. Brand new pandemic teacher right here, yep. you know? So I need, your, I need your feedback about what's working and what's not. Mm-hmm. So here are some lessons that I've learned. The number one thing that my kids value, and this is, I think, worth, I think it's worth every teacher thinking about and recognizing and realizing. The number one thing that they say is they really appreciate the fact that I notice them in my classes. Mm-hmm. So just a big, uh, a bit of background for your listeners. Right now, I'm teaching a full virtual academy caseload. Uh, I have 160 students across four classes. I teach them only remotely. So these are kids who've chosen not to come in the building for the entire first semester. Many of them have signed up for the second semester. Uh, I teach eighth graders. So I bet you can guess how frequently they turn on their webcams, right? <laughs> like the answer is about as often as teachers turn their webcams on during faculty meetings, right. which is essentially not at all, right? right? Yeah. So I look at profile pics all day. Mm-hmm. And, but that hasn't stopped me from noticing and recognizing the kids all the time in my class. So I turn on my class about 10 minutes before class starts and I sit and I, as each kid walks in, I recognize them. Hey, it's good to see you. How are you doing today? Ryan, holy cow, I see that your profile pics changed. Tell me what that is. I don't even know what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, If I know something about them, if I know an interest of theirs, I'll bring it up. Today, uh, I have a student who's a huge New England Patriots fan. Well, they won the football game last night, right? So, hey, Ryan, congratulations. I noticed that your team won last night. Um, or I'll say things like, hey, you know what? You really make me laugh. That is the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. I'm so glad you're here today. And remember, I'm saying this to profile pics, yeah. right? Yeah. So some kids who I, I legit, it's November. I still don't know what they look like. However, I'm making a real effort to acknowledge that they've come to class, mm-hmm. to say goodbye to them when they leave class. Mm-hmm. I do multiple small Um, engagement opportunities in the chat box, I'll say to my students, hey, guys, here's a yes, no question. And I'll ask a question and I'll require them to give me a yes, no in the chat box. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it throws names up in my chat and I can say, oh, thanks, Mina. I appreciate that reply. Sandeep, great thinking. I really appreciate that too. Thank you so much for sharing. So the kids hear their names over and over and over again from me throughout the course of my virtual class and of everything in my surveys, that's what they value the most. Um, One student in the spring of last year said, I feel noticed and that feels good. And man, it gives me chills, right? Because we all want to be noticed. And remember, I teach middle schoolers. Being noticed in middle school is an even bigger deal. And so what do I attribute some of my success to in the virtual environment? It's an incredibly simple practice. Say hello to your kids. Right. Say goodbye to your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, start a conversation with your kids. Thank your students for participating. Mm-hmm. All of those little things, I think, go a heck of a long way towards creating a space that feels, that makes kids feel like they belong. And, and right now, feeling like they belong is probably more important than anything to getting kids to be successful. You know, if they're teaching, if your school is in a, in a three-week rotation where you only see groups of kids once every three weeks and then you're teaching them online, well, those two weeks while the kids are at home, if you want them to be of benefit, 
simple strategies, make sure that your kids know that you care about them and that you notice them and that you see them. Um, so that's the probably the most important thing that my kids have said that they care the most about. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that they say is a little bit more technical. Um, I've used a tool, and I know that this is a question that you were thinking about asking a little bit later. Mm-hmm. I use a tool called Pear Deck, okay. uh, which allows you to uh, turn a presentation or to integrate interactive opportunities into a presentation. Okay. And so as I'm delivering a lesson to kids, what Pear Deck allows me to do is really quickly and easily gather information from them. So I can ask a question and in Pear Deck, every student can reply. And then I can throw up some responses and I call them spotlight responses mm-hmm. and share them with my students. I can do quick surveys in Pear Deck where kids drag a dot along a rating scale. Uh, and all of those kinds of small opportunities to participate are things that my kids have really valued. I use the chat box constantly. I'll say things like, hey guys, scale of one to five, how do you feel about the theory of evolution? Or I'll say, hey guys, scale of one to five, we were talking today about you know, Charles Darwin and his Galapagos finches. So scale of one to five, how convincing is that to you as evidence? And they respond in the chat box just with a number. Right. All those little opportunities to participate have made um, my lessons feel more active to kids than I think they're um, maybe experiencing in other classes. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of times they feel like a virtual lesson can become sit and get really darn quick. Right. And I, and I think that's especially true if a teacher is trying to teach face-to-face kids and at-home kids at the exact same time. Oh, yeah. you know, teachers struggle with um, paying attention to that remote group because mm-hmm. you've got a group that's in front of you at exactly. that particular moment. And so all of those little opportunities to participate keep my kids from feeling like my lessons are sit and get. Yeah. So those are two really tangible examples yeah. of, of, you know, lessons I've learned. Here's one more. Uh, I use those chat box ratings constantly. There's, I mean, probably 20 times a class period, my kids are giving me some kind of rating or answer, a quick rating or answer in the chat box. Mm-hmm. And in my last survey, my students said, hey, we'd like to hear our classmates a little more frequently. And so would you, would you ask us to, you know, report out, can we hear each other's voices more often? So then check this out next day. It's okay. Hey guys, listen, you know, I got a question for you, Ryan, would you mind answering? And then there's crickets, right? Like Ryan's like, uh, my mic doesn't work, you know, or, or I'll say, Hey, Sylvia, why don't you grab the mic? And Hey, my mic's not working either. Mr. Fairder, a whole ton of broken mics that next day. Oh yeah. (laughs) So I asked the kids, I said, Hey, so, you know, you said you wanted the opportunity to hear each other, but now nobody's volunteering. And what they said is, well, we don't want to be, we don't want to be put on the spot. Right. So the next strategy was in Pear Deck, I give a little survey that says each time I want someone to grab the mic, I say, are you comfortable grabbing the mic right now? Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm nervous or no. And so they can tell me, and I can see on the back end of Pear Deck, who's said, sure, calling me, Mr. Ferreter, or who has said, nope, don't call me at all, Mr. Ferreter. So isn't that neat how the feedback from the kids has led to this polishing of my practice? Yeah. Um, and, and so that's why I think it's worth doing, yeah, you know, for sure. Uh, if, if we ask, we're going to, we're going to find out what's working and what's not. Yeah. I think you're so, so you're so right about how, you know, virtual learning can just slip into a, a passive experience and, and everything you talked about really is a way to uh, personalize 
and socialize a, a virtual learning environment to me uh, is is why it's being so successful for you is because you really have made that effort. Uh, uh, for those who aren't familiar with uh, Pear Deck, is it, if you were maybe not as tech savvy as Bill Ferreter, is it user, I, I'm not familiar with it. So is it user-friendly? Is it fairly intuitive? Can you, and, and, and beyond that, are there so, any other tools that you think folks should know about as, as, you know, as good tools for them to explore in this remote environment? Sure. Um, so it's funny because uh, I get that question a lot. Um, I, I call this the rule of Karen. And I call it the rule of Karen because I'm the guy on my PLT who always comes and says, hey, I've got a new tool. Maybe we should start using it with our kids. And Karen, my colleague, says, well, how easy is it to use, Bill? <laughs> and, and I'll say, it's incredibly easy. I, it's, I mean, Karen, it's no problem at all. And then Karen goes all kind of psycho and she goes to Gorney Weaver with her whole easy for who, Bill? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, because I think sometimes people who are tech savvy, forget that finding a tool that works for you yeah. is not really the ultimate goal. Right. What you have to do, if you're, gonna, if you're really going to be a contributing member to a collaborative team, the goal is to find a tool that is approachable for all of your colleagues, mm -hmm. right? Like if, if we really do believe that all means all and that we share kids across the hall and the success of students in Karen's room is as important to me as the success of students in my own room, then my goal has to be to find a tool that's approachable to everyone. Mm -hmm. So you asked specifically about Pear Deck, and I'll give you the answer. I had heard about Pear Deck uh, in maybe March or April. Uh, other teachers were starting to use it. Um, I hadn't tinkered with it ever. I never even looked at it. And then I decided to use it in a presentation that I did over the summer with a thousand teachers. And so my first experience with it was an audience of a thousand. Wow. And I had never used it at all, not even once. Mm -hmm. And so I was pretty nervous, right? The stakes were certainly high right. and it worked without a flaw. Wow. I mean, not, not, even, not even one hitch. Mm -hmm. um, Pear Deck is uh, uh, essentially it will, if you use a tool like Google Slides already to make your slides, then what you do in, with Pear Deck is you can get an add-on, which is something that you add to a, your Google account. You can get a Pear Deck add-on and immediately you can take those exact slides and add interactive elements. So if you want to have a draggable rating bar, mm. and that's already something that's built into your slides, you just click the Pear Deck add-on and you can add it. Wow. If you want to create an open-ended question for kids to reply to, you just open up the add-on, click the button that says, I would like kids to answer here. And sure enough, that adds an interactive question. It's incredibly easy to use. The other thing that I really like about Pear Deck, and there are other tools that do similar things, but the thing that I really like about Pear Deck is they have a template library that has, I don't know, I would probably say close to 200 templates right now that cross all areas. So there are sample SEL templates, social and emotional learning templates. Mm -hmm. There are sample templates for math. There are sample templates for science. There are sample templates for the, for the littles, kindergarten, first, second grade. Yeah. And so as a teacher, you can immediately go in and look at those sample templates and get an idea of what's possible mm -hmm. and then add those sample templates to your presentation and use them immediately. Um, and I just think that's really, really cool. So it's incredibly approachable um, and it's super realistic. And I would encourage everyone to take a look at it. Yeah. Now, as far as other tools go, 
I think the key question, Tom, is a question that sometimes we forget when we think about technology. The goal isn't to go find a tool that's really cool. The goal is to go find a tool that supports a practice that you believe in. Right. And so in order to recommend tools to people, the first thing that I always need to know is, well, what is a practice that you really believe in? And then let's go find a tool that facilitates that. I'll give you an example. I really think right now, social interaction, or um, I should say that differently, video, visual interaction between teacher and student is important right now, especially this year, right? I've got kids I've never met before. I've never seen them before. And so a tool that makes video interaction possible between teacher and students is Flipgrid. So you can throw up a conversation for kids. They're called topics. And maybe it's a question that you want your students to answer. And they can record short video responses to your question. And you can record short video responses back to the student. All of those interactions can be private. In my classroom right right now, I set everything as a private topic. So that means the student can hear my response and I can hear the student, but the conversation is not open to the entire class. And, and I do that because again, it encourages more participation from my kids. So that visual you know, feedback, that visual back and forth between teacher and student, I think is important for developing a relationship. Yeah. So Flipgrid is a tool I pursue. Uh, I'll give you another example. Lots of us have performance outcomes in our object in our curriculum. So we need to gather visual evidence of a performance in order to rate student mastery. So we better go out and find a tool that allows us to assess performances. And two that are popular, I mean, primary teachers love to use a tool that's called Seesaw, which allows students to record themselves demonstrating mastery and allows the teacher to provide video responses to those demonstrations of mastery. Uh, I like to use the tool that's called Padlet to do the exact same work. Uh, what's the difference between Padlet and Seesaw? Well, Seesaw is paid. There's, It's not free. Yeah. And Padlet's got a pretty robust free version, right? right? So why did I pursue Padlet? Not because it's some kind of whiz-bang tool I want to share with my kids, but instead because I need a tool where I can gather a performance assessment of my students. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think teachers need to ask when they're thinking about tools is, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And then what tools will help facilitate yeah. that? Tom, if you're interested, I don't know if you have show notes, yeah, I do. but if if you have show notes, as soon as we're done, I'll send you a link. I've got a document where I've written about the practices that I believe in mm-hmm. and the tools that support those practices. Yeah. So I'd Absolutely. be happy to share that. Yeah, I, I would love to put that in the show notes for sure. Uh, I think people would be very interested. That, that Bill, that, that is such a wise question to ask, which is what do you want to do and then find the tool that lets you do that versus, you know, people can either be distracted by the shiny object and the tech and then other people are going to feel overwhelmed by you know being shown tech tools that don't really align with what they do and then they think about well how is that relevant to me and i think starting with the idea of what is it that you're hoping to be able to do and let's go find a tech tool to do that i think is such a wise uh way to approach it so i you know you know and, Bill, and so and go ahead and so tom let me let me ask you let me ask you a quick question then yeah like who else gets overwhelmed when there's a million tech tools that don't serve a purpose? Right. It isn't just the teachers. No. 
It's the students for sure. It's the kids at home. Our kids are tired of being buried in quote new digital tools. Absolutely. And teach, teachers are working from a place of goodness, right? Mm -hmm. We assume that kids are motivated by things that we share with them digitally, mm -hmm. but that's not the case. Yeah. Kids aren't motivated by technology any more than they're motivated by their shoes and socks. Yeah. They're motivated by interesting questions. Right. They're motivated by good learning. Exactly. And so we end up overwhelming our kids with new tools too. So being deliberate about your choices right now, I think is yeah. essential. It, it reminds me a lot of, you know, and, and this isn't really a, a direct, you know, parallel, but I remember going to a coaching conference back in the early nineties and, uh, you know, listening to a coach talk saying, listen, don't take, don't change the drills every week. Pick, pick a handful of drills that you know, develop your athletes and stick with them and do them well and go deep with them to develop footwork or to develop vision or to help students, you know, help, help athletes understand how to, you know, an angle when they're making a tackle or, or, you know, setting a screen in basketball, pick, pick your set of drills and go deep with them as opposed to changing it, you know, every week. And it reminds me of that in terms of, you know, Pick your tools that that really align with what you're trying to accomplish in class, and just keep using them because that repetitiveness creates the familiarity right. that students crave, and that they. I listen, Bill. I I mean, I could we. I think we could go another hour on all of this stuff, and I've I've really enjoyed it. Um, and 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 maybe sometime down the road we can we can uh, as we sort of wrap things up here, uh, we can we can do this again because I've just I've been you know I've been I've learned a lot in terms of how you've approached it. I think you've given some great advice to listeners who are in similar situations to yourself in trying to find their way through. Uh, but we're going to finish up with um, a little bit of fun here as we as we always do. Uh, I'm going to ask you a few lighthearted questions. I finish up every interview this way in, in ways that allow people to get to know you. I think people have gotten to know you professionally very well here in terms of your focus on relationships. And it's very obvious how much you care deeply for the students you teach that that has come through loud and clear but let's get let's get uh, to know bill a little bit on a slightly personal level nothing too intrusive but but just some fun questions to finish up here as we go so i've got a series of questions to ask you um, you don't know what I'm going to ask you. They're going to put you on the spot a little bit and feel free to take the answers in whatever direction uh, you want to go. So let's start with the first one. The first one, I have to admit, is a little bit self-serving. Uh, Bill, you've been public about your dual citizenship. Uh, you are now a Canadian citizen and a U.S. citizen. And most recently, you were uh, tweeting about now securing your Canadian passport. So I want to ask you, very self-serving question, what is your favorite thing about Canada or your favorite thing about Canadians? Uh, I would say that my favorite thing about Canada is, and, and by the way, you wanted this to be lighthearted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, <laughs> to me, the greatest thing about Canada is the focus of your nation on social justice and equity, right? Like yeah. it's in your curriculum. Yeah. Like that's that blows my mind. Like the fact that, that like empowering people to think about equity is a part of your instructional program. It, it just, I have chills right now. Yeah. It leaves me with chills. Now, if you want something else, like right, you want let, my, so that's the that's little, the serious less, answer. Let's go to the the fun part. <laughs> it's it's hockey, one hundred percent. I mean, go. God yeah. God bless God bless Canada, and thank you for your game. Yeah. you know that would be my answer. Yeah, I've seen a so. few. Uh, I've seen a few over the years. A few hockey jerseys worn by you having lost some uh, some friendly wagers about hockey. I results. lose bets all the time to Canadians, <laughs> you know? Like, in fact, you, and here's another one for your show notes, Tom. Yeah. I lost a bet on the U.S. versus Canada in the Olympics, I don't know, I want to say eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I had to sing the Canadian national anthem on YouTube. 
So I will share that. You can put it in your show notes. You guys got to watch it. It's adorable because at the time my daughter was four Mm -hmm. and she joined me in singing it. Yeah. And she's just cute as can be. Awesome. So awesome. Well, now you have dual citizenship. So uh, it's a win-win situation whenever the U.S. and Canada. hundred percent. Right, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's second question. Um, who for you is the greatest lead singer, not solo artist, the greatest lead singer of a band all time? Who's your all-time favorite lead singer? I mean, it's a pretty obvious answer, isn't it? I mean, John Bon Jovi, of course. Okay. Well, it might be obvious to <laughs> did you. Did you see Bill. that coming? <laughs> I did, did not. You, did you see that coming, Tom? I did not. I did not. We're all living on a prayer at one point or another, are we not? So, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, for me- I can sing that too, if you'd like. No. Well, let's so. say we, we're running out of time here, Bill. So maybe, maybe we'll put something on YouTube for that as well. I did not see that one coming. Uh yeah, I mean, for me, it begins and ends with Freddie Mercury, but uh, hey. Ah, you know, this okay. Is, this is where, all right, uh, Freddie's Freddie's up there too. Okay, all right, so. but we'll, that's all right. All right. <laughs> so, uh, third third question: uh, What's the one professional sports team or college sports team that you hope loses every single time they play, no matter who they're playing against? That is the one team that you hope they get throttled each week. Well, if you ask anyone in Toronto. I think they'd have maybe the same answer. I'm not totally positive. Okay. Uh, the Boston Bruins. Boston they Bruins. they just need to, they just need to be wiped <laughs> off the face of the earth. Well, fun I fact: mean, uh, 2011, uh, my beloved Vancouver Canucks were in the Stanley Cup final against the Boston Bruins, lost in Game Seven, and so the Boston nice. Bruins are 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 up there as a public enemy in, in Vancouver as well. So we're, I think we're, we're Good. with you and all of that. Yeah. Toronto, Montreal would say the same thing for sure. Boston is uh, it's one of those franchises in the NHL. that's either loved or hated. That's for sure. Um, yep. Favorite, favorite holiday, Christmas or Thanksgiving? Um, boy, tough one. I'm going to go with Christmas because right now it's the one time each year that I get home to Buffalo. Huh. Uh, I grew up in Buffalo, New York and, so it's the one time I get home and see my brother and my sister and okay. my mom and, you know, just hang out with the family. Nice to connect. Hey, are you, uh, are you a yeah. Bills fan then having grown up in Buffalo? Who's, who is not a Bills fan? <laughs> like I'm relatively certain that everyone is a Bills fan, right? We're all the Josh Allen train right now. Are we not? Well, I don't know if all of us are, but something interesting about Canadians is that Canadians always have an NFL team. And certainly Toronto is very much affiliated with, with Buffalo as out here in Vancouver, we are very much, there's 5,000, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 Seattle Seahawks season ticket holders that are from Vancouver. So, well, Hey, how'd you like the game a couple weeks ago? Didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. (laughs) Not happy about it at all, Bill. Not happy a little bit. Question five. (laughs) Last one. Last one before we get to that final question. This is a question that I know is going to be debated uh, in in all social circles over the next six weeks. It is one of the most important questions that we face uh, every year at this time. And it is this binary choice. Uh, And I I know it's one of the the most intense questions that people debate uh, as they head into the Christmas season. Here's the question. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? 100%. Not only is Die Hard a Christmas movie, it is the best movie of all time. I mean, we. Okay. I think we can agree on that, right? Well, I, I don't know if I could agree with you on that second part. So tell me why it's the greatest. First of all, why is it a Christmas movie? Oh. And second, why is it the greatest movie of all time? <laughs> Bruce, Bruce, listen, Bruce Willis with bombs. Like, I mean, like, I don't think you can beat that. Like, yeah. I feel I feel relatively strongly about that. Yeah. 
So the answer is yes, of course. It is so. a Christmas movie. Well, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, that may be a question that I ask a number of guests as we head into the Christmas season. I know that is hotly contested and wildly debated. I want I want like a graph. Like I want to know who <laughs> says no that's because right. I'm crossing them off my Christmas card list. So. Yeah. Well, that's that's it'll be interesting. We'll see how that unfolds. Maybe we'll throw it up on Twitter to to get people's. Responses. I think that's <laughs> worth it. You think you should? For sure. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the, the important questions, right? Okay, so one final question, Bill, as we wrap up today. Uh, and again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy day for, for this. Um, one theme that I'm trying to run through the podcast is the theme of success and happiness and thinking about just, I've asked this question of everyone I've interviewed, and it is this. If, if a random person stopped you on the street and, and asked you, what is your definition of success or how would you define success? How would you answer that person? Uh, I think I would say that my definition of success is having knowing with, with no doubt, with ultimate certainty that I've made a positive impact on the people around me. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in my case, as a classroom teacher, like that means knowing without a doubt that I've made a positive impact on the kids who, who go through my room. Uh, and, it, and it happened for me. I'll just put this up on your screen yeah. uh, for you podcast people. I got a letter in the mail yesterday and it didn't have any name on the front of it. I, so I had no idea who it was from and it's, and it's written as beautiful cursive script. Mm -hmm. And I don't know a single person who writes in cursive, mm -hmm. let alone who sends me letters. Right. And uh, I opened it up and it's a letter from a student that I had last year. And I mean, it's just beautiful, you know? It's, Miss Fairder, I hope you're doing well and I hope you're safe and it was so good to be in your class and mm -hmm. let me tell you more about, you know, what's happening with me. And um, so that's success, right? Yeah. I obviously made enough of a difference on her that she's still thinking about me today. Mm -hmm. And so success means making a positive impact on the people who are around us. Yeah. And, as, and as teachers, I mean, I think that means making a positive difference on our kids, yeah. preparing them academically to be successful, but preparing them socially to be successful, right. um, giving them the confidence that they can succeed. Like that's what success is. Facilitating success in others. How about yeah, that? Yeah, no, you know, and, so, and, and Bill, by, by that definition, it is uh, obvious that you have been wildly successful in having a positive impact on everyone you come into contact with, whether it's I students, whether it's, through your family, whether it's at you know workshops and presentations, uh, the, the the positive impact is ubiquitous, and and everybody knows uh, the type of energy and passion that you bring to the job. Uh, Bill, I, again, oh, I, I can't thank you enough. Oh, you're welcome. I can't thank you enough for for taking the time uh, to be with me today, listeners. I really would encourage you to uh, follow Bill uh, on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at plug us in. And that, that's the Twitter handle to follow. And that's where you get a lot of great information from Bill and, and sort of almost live updates on how things are unfolding uh, with, with his practice. <laughs> and I love it. Um, I would also encourage you to check out his website. Uh, that's uh, www.williamferreter.com. And through that website, you can access his wildly popular blog, The Tempered Radical. Uh, lots of great information there and some, some, some wonderful thoughts that, that uh, you know, Bill's never shy about sharing his thoughts on things. And, and I think, you know, you'll always learn something from, from the blog posts that, that Bill posts there. So a lot of the information Bill talked about today is, is posted in several of the blog posts on, on that website. So please 
encourage you to check it out. And for listeners also, uh, Bill had mentioned he's holding up the letter just as a reminder, these interviews, uh, uh, you know, a few weeks after they appear on the podcast also appear on the YouTube channel. So, and the video version of this will appear on the YouTube channel. So if you haven't subscribed to that YouTube channel yet, I would encourage you to do so. Again, Bill, thanks for carving out time for me today. Uh, I'm sure our listeners really appreciated your insight, your passion, um, and everything that you you bring to the job. I, I've really appreciated it. Well, I sure appreciate it too, Tom. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Have a great See night. You now. Yeah. Bye now. This week's assessment corner is going to focus on something that came up a couple of times in, again, some of the Zoom PD sessions I was leading this week. And that is the idea of being instructionally agile. So if I were to kind of summarize the way that that a few of the participants were asking the question, it was something to the effect of, Tom, I understand the idea of being instructionally agile, but how do I plan for that? How do I infuse that into uh, my, my daily planning, my weekly planning, etc.? So quick history lesson first to begin with. Okay, where did this idea come from? Late 90s, early 2000s, two things explode onto the education scene. One, of course, is assessment. So late 90s, we have, you know, so many uh, leading researchers and voices in assessment, but I would say primarily as a result of the research that was presented by Paul Black and Dylan William in 1998, we have this, uh, the backdrop of the standards movement, etc. All of that leads to a kind of renaissance in assessment practices and a renewed interest in formative assessment, feedback, and just rethinking the entire assessment paradigm. But the other thing that exploded onto the scene in the late 90s and the early 2000s, of course, was technology. We had this explosion in technology. And so what we saw then was this exponential growth in the sophistication of online gradebooks and technology, right? So these two things converging led inadvertently, and I don't know, maybe intentionally in some places, but there just became this, in the early part of the 2000s, this desire to over-quantify learning. We, we just got really excited about what the tech could do for us and database decision-making and all those conversations. So now my assessment journey begins in that sort of early part of the 2000s, 03, 04, and, and just sort of going through that, uh, that sort of growth for me in that first decade of the 2000s. So as my assessment journey progresses through that first decade, I'm starting to notice this desire to over-quantify. Um, and as I'm sort of going to conferences, reading books, and, and, and learning for myself about assessment, this over-quantification starts to stand out to me. So that takes us, you know, away from what the spirit of Paul Black and Dylan Williams' research was all about, because they, make, they often made reference to this idea uh, that assessment, you know, especially formative assessment, is a day-to-day, minute-by-minute journey. It's a strategy that we use. And the over-quantification of that, we're starting to get away from the spirit of that. So into the late 2000s and the early 2010s, when I started doing workshops and breakout sessions and all these different sort of assessment, this assessment work, I started doing breakout sessions called Being Instructionally Agile. It, it kind of came from my sports background, both as an athlete and as a coach, that the idea that being agile was an athlete an asset uh, athletically, and being agile was an equally important asset as a teacher educationally, right? So it's the idea of assessment kind of as a verb, this mindset where assessment was used to take action uh, to advance learning, primarily to take, you know, versus quantifying, the priority is to take action and to 
to advance proficiency or growth along a learning progression, not to quantify, not to track, not to report. So a few years later, 2014, uh, Nicole Dimich and Cassandra Erkins and I come together as a team. And Nicole was, of course, on the podcast a few weeks ago, and uh, Cassandra's going to be on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Uh, we come together and we start shaping what we then called our, or still call, our six assessment tenets. And we wrote the book Essential Assessment, and instructional agility, or being instructionally agile, was one of those assessment tenets. And in 2018, it actually became its own book. So back to the question. So when we wrote Instructional Agility, we came up with a succinct phrasing that seems on the surface to present a kind of dichotomy, but it really isn't when we dig a little bit deeper. And that phrasing is, the greater you plan with precision, the easier it is to respond with agility, right? So planning with precision feels very tight. Responding with agility feels very loose. So there is the apparent dichotomy, but, the, but it really doesn't kind of work that way. They actually work in tandem. So... In the middle of a lesson, I do think it is fair for every teacher to be asked, how do you know in the middle of a lesson, lesson sequence, lesson experience, doesn't have to be a singular class period, but how do you know in the middle of a lesson that the students are still learning? I think that's a fair question. That question then speaks to planning with precision. Because if you don't know in the middle of a lesson, you may be leaving you know, individual students or whole cohorts behind. So to answer that question, how do you know, how do you plan with precision or how do you know they're still learning? I always suggest three questions to guide your planning in advance of each lesson or lesson sequence, right? It may not be every day, but in the natural flow of teaching, here are three things to think about. First, what are the most common misunderstandings that typically emerge when I teach this concept or this lesson or this idea or this process or this competency, right? What are the most common misunderstandings that emerge? Right then and there, you're starting to think about the different iterations or interpretations that students might have. The second question is the assessment question, which is how will I know if any of those misunderstandings are emerging throughout the lesson? Now that question there, that's the assessment planning, right? So now that's the opportunity for me to place an assessment. Again, it doesn't have to be formal. We're not talking about staple packets of paper. We're talking about assessment strategies in the middle of a lesson. You have to still make sure that how you're assessing matches what you're looking for because assessment methods, regardless of purpose, assessment methods are not interchangeable. So that still has to be there because what we want to elicit, of course, is accurate information. So that can come in many forms, right? It could be a hinge question, uh, four corners activities, uh, you know, partner talks, uh, table discussions, whole group discussions. And of course, now in a remote learning environment, you can listen to conversations in, uh, through Zoom or, or other sort of technology. And end of a lesson, it could be in the form of an exit ticket or something like that, right? So what are the most common misunderstandings? How will I know whether or not those misunderstandings are emerging? There's your assessment question. And then third, the question is, what will I do in response if one or more of those misunderstandings begins to emerge, right? In other words, what will my maneuvers be? There is an old adage that I often sort of have lived by through, through I would say, the latter half of my career anyway, and that is the idea that if it's predictable, it's preventable. So being aware of those misunderstandings helps you actually shape instruction proactively to account for those misunderstandings ahead of time. So in your lesson planning, 
the misunderstandings can be accounted for in advance of teaching as well, right? And in, in the, in the learning experience. You don't have to wait until those misunderstandings emerge. You still need to be aware of them because despite your best efforts, those misunderstandings still might emerge. But again, you can proactively account for those. Now, the misunderstandings can be about content, about process, about competencies, you know, doing a deep analysis or whatever. The point is there is a misunderstanding and the point is to be proactive whether formal or informal, to plan for the possibility that those misunderstandings might emerge. Okay, So that possibility is the key. Instructional maneuvers may not always be necessary because one of the things you also have to keep in mind is that when you elicit evidence mid-lesson or when you, when you gauge whether or not the most common misunderstandings are emerging, they might not be. And that might mean that your mid-lesson assessment actually confirms that what you had planned for the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes, the next half an hour, or planned for tomorrow is on point and you should keep doing that. The point really is, with being instructionally agile, the point is really to set yourself up to be poised to react should it be necessary, right? So that's the planning with precision piece. The more I plan with precision, the greater opportunity I have to respond with agility. So again, planning with precision, think of those three questions. What are the typical misunderstandings that emerge when I teach this concept, lesson, competency, whatever? Two, how will I know whether or not those misunderstandings are beginning to emerge? There's your assessment question. And three, what will you do in response Right? How will you make a what will you what will you do as your maneuver? That maneuver could be you directly as a teacher, you know, reteaching something. It could also mean you as the teacher engineering an opportunity for students to be reflective and have a little more agency. Again, it depends on where they are in terms of their understanding or their sophistication with what they're learning. Being instructionally agile, responding in real time to emerging evidence of student learning is at the heart. It's the core of how we bring about these achievement gains through the use of sound assessment practices. That's all we have for today. I know that was a long one, so thanks for hanging in there. We'll finish up really quickly with a few things. A reminder that you can still register for the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training that's happening December 10th and 11th. All that information can be found on the solutiontree.com website. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. Podcast Twitter account is at TomShimmerPod. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. Also, please email me your questions for Assessment Corner or any other feedback or suggestions about the podcast. That's TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. My guest next week is going to be Tara Barton, who is a service learning expert from Melbourne, Australia. And we're going to explore the whole idea of service learning and what a service learning model would look like in a school. So again, thanks for joining me this week. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review the podcast. I'd really appreciate you spreading the word too as we try to grow the listening audience. So happy Thanksgiving and uh, have a great week, everyone.